Good morning. Good to see you. Glad that you are here with us today. Uh, just want to, I want to ask you a question to see maybe if this is some of the language maybe you've used in your family or with your friends. And have you ever been given refrigerator rights? You know what that means? Refrigerator rights? You're like, it's the right to use the refrigerator. No, it's the right to, like, when you go to somebody's house and, and, and you, ha you know, you've been there a couple times, you're hanging out with them, you're meeting them, you, you move past the friendship kind of stage and you start to become more friends. And so they, there's this moment, this kind of christening moment, you bow down on one knee, they pull out a sword, they kind of... Okay, it's not that detailed. There's no oil or anointing, but there's a sense of when, when, when the host will say to you, hey, just, you have refrigerator rights, man, which means you have the right to our refrigerator without asking. Like, it's help yourself. Mi casa eh su casa, right? Did I do that right? You're like, no, that was terrible. Don't try. Okay, now I know. Now I know. Duolingo, I need to practice a lot more. Rosetta Stone, I'll do that. Right? But what, what's yours is mine is kind of that idea, right? Refrigerator rights. I, I remember when I was in college receiving refrigerator rights from my pastor's wife. When I got into college, I felt very alone when I got to college. I felt very isolated when I got to college. I had a conflict with my mom and my stepdad when I was in high school. And right before I left for college, I got kicked out of the house. And I'm not going to go into that conflict, but it happened. And so I was eager to like leave. I was like, I want to get out of town. I just want to go away and go to college. And so I went away to college and I made great friends like really quickly, but I had that I, I missed um, that kind of relationships that were above me, kind of in my, my parents' age bracket. And I never thought I would be homesick because I was so eager to leave, right? But like every 19, 18-year-old, right, I realized I don't know everything. Okay, maybe you knew everything when you were 18. I realized I didn't, right? I thought that I wasn't going to be homesick, but I kind of became a little homesick, well, joining a church and being at a church really changed that for me. And see, I had this meal plan when I was in college, and I got 13 meals a week. And now you're thinking, that's why he's so skinny. And I was like, I only got 13, and that's because I was very poor, but I got all my school paid for, and that was the plan that got paid for, so that's all I had. And I figured out the system. I figured, okay, with lunch and dinner, I can sneak leftovers into my backpack for breakfast. Great idea. So I can cover that meal, but that still means I still have to cover one more meal. I still had to, because if I'm only eating twice a day, I need 14 meals. And I only had 13 meals that were paid for. So I was still missing that gap. Well, my pastor's wife, awesome lady, she would prepare lunch every Sunday for me and for other college kids who came out and drove out to go to service. And it was like, Awesome. And she made the most amazing grilled cheese sandwiches. Oh, just incredible. But that became more than, I was more than just a guest. I hung out there for years. Every week I was hanging out there. And I became really a part of that family. And I got to taste what Christian charity felt like. What that community of charity felt like. And really looking back, I would tell you that even when I wasn't following Jesus, when I was actually not a fan of God, when I would say that I hated God, 
I still went to church because I had so many questions and I was very curious as, as, a, as a young adult. And so I still asked a lot of questions and I found church to be a place of great charity, a community that loved people. It's almost like when I would go into church, even though I didn't believe what they believed, I still had refrigerator rights. I still had this, you belong with us, Paul. And I hope you experience that here at Sunrise. Like if you're not yet following Jesus, if you're still just considering who Jesus is, you're just curious about Jesus, I hope you find this to be a place where your curiosity finds hospitality, where you feel cared and loved for. And, and I, what I hope is that when we examine the charity of the New Testament church, just, just as they're starting, that we will not only say, you know, I want to experience that kind of charity in a community. I, I hope, my other hope is that we would want to embody that kind of charity. So I want to challenge us today, as we look at the charity of the New Testament community, I want us to ask ourselves, how can, how can we commit to being that kind of charitable community that gives kind of refrigerator rights out to those that are around us. So before we jump to our passage, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4. I want to give you the main idea, the big idea of this morning. And this is what I think we're going to see developed in our passage. So if you can write down one thing, I want you to write this down. The big idea for today is this. What's mine is yours because what's mine is his. What's mine is yours because what's mine is his. And here's what you see in kind of this big idea. You see kind of two ideas. You see the idea of stewardship. What's mine is his. And the idea of sharing. What's mine is yours. And here's what I think we're going to see in our passage. Is the connection between those two things is causal. Meaning one causes the other. Stewardship causes sharing. When I look at my resources and I say to myself, what's mine is his, here's what we'll do. Instead of looking at our resources and saying, I'm an owner, right? This is my stuff. What's mine is mine. What yours is yours. That's not a Christian attitude, right? That kind of idea of looking at our resources, that's the owner idea, meaning you're focusing on your rights and not your responsibilities, when we look at our resources, it's fine to say the word mine, but we need to look at our resources and say, what are my responsibility with these things? I'm a steward. What's mine is first his. And so when I look at my resources, I say to myself, what's my responsibility with these things? And my responsibility is to share, is to care, is to show hospitality. It's to make grilled cheese sandwiches for 19-year-old theology students. <laughs> what's mine is his. That's why what's mine is yours. So let me show you this. Acts chapter 4, we're in verse 32. We're going to see the charity of this community. And what we're going to see is because they were so charitable, they were able to accomplish just a crazy reality. I mean, it's shocking what they were able to achieve when it came to the charity within the first century community. Not a perfect church, but what they were able to accomplish is outstanding. All right, so let's just first look at the picture we have here. Acts chapter 4, starting with verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. What's mine is yours. 
And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Now let's just stop right here for a moment because what's happening is, is Luke is narrating the kind of movement of the first century followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus has died, he rose again, he hung out with his followers, he commissioned them, he ascended to the Father. Now the New Testament movement is starting. The first century church is exploding and expanding. And so what Luke does is he, he gives us kind of like the highlight reel of what's happening in the early church. But he takes these moments of pause. It's like he hits the pause button and does an analysis of what's going on so far. Think of it like halftime, right? Like when you're watching a football game, you play all the, you know, all the action is happening. The commentators are doing their thing. Then they take a pause and they recap. Well, here's what's happened. USC has no run offense. Their pass defense is terrible. And that's why they lost to Notre Dame. And I'm still mad about it. It's okay. Think, will you mourn with me? The scripture tells us to mourn with those who mourn. Okay? And if you're an Oregon fan, we can mourn together. And if you're a Washington fan, there's a church up north for you that I would love for you to go. Just kidding. Right? But that, think of it like halftime. That's what's happening. Luke is like taking a halftime break. He's like, let me pause, and I want to paint a picture of what's happening so far. We find this in the book of Acts on several occasions. Okay? So here's the picture that he paints. Now, in this picture... What he's highlighting the most for us is he kind of captures what the first century church is doing. He highlights their charity, their, their love for each other, their idea of, hey, what's mine is yours. That's what he's going to highlight. All right, let me show you this. Let's just kind of break this out. He really talks about three things that are happening just in this little snapshot. He's saying, first, the church is unified. Then I'll say, second, the, the church has charity. And then he'll say the church has faithfulness to the message of Jesus Christ. Right, let's go back and look at those verses and see verse 32. It says, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. That's the unity here. Now now notice what I think he's emphasizing for us. He's not saying they were of one mind. Now, were they of one mind? Yes. Did they agree? Was there unity on some, you know, formal doctrine? Was there unity of thought? Did they believe the same thing about Jesus Christ's death and resurrection? Yes. But what's his emphasis here? It's not agreement on ideas. It's that we are one. We care for each other. One heart and one soul. That's a deep, that's a deep friendship there. A deep and rich community of intimacy there. Not lost in the crowd, but I care about you. And we see this kind of color all of the New Testament language because the most dominant way for believers to talk about believers, the number one descriptor in the New Testament for believers to speak of other believers is familial terms. Terms like, you're my brother, you're my sister. That dynamic. It's not you're an attender or like you're a fellow fan. No, you're my brother. You're my sister. And it's out of this unity of love, this bond of community that then brings forth charity. Because just naturally for us, what kids do you care about the most? Your kids. What nieces and nephews do you care about the most? Your nieces and your nephews. And that's appropriate, 
We call that moral proximity, meaning those who are closest to you have the highest responsibility toward. Now, do you have responsibility to other children? Yes. Other nieces and nephews? Yes. Other sons and daughters? Yes. But if you're a mom and a dad, your greatest obligation is to who? Your kids, because they're within a greater moral proximity to you. God has entrusted you with that responsibility. Well, in the New Testament church, all the believers felt like you are near. You're in my inner circle. You're right here. You're family to me. That's who you are. All right, beautiful. And what does this make them do? Be charitable people, right? Look at the next thing he says as he describes this. They're of one heart and soul. And this led them to this idea. We share stuff. What's mine is yours. Right? Very clearly stated. It says this. And any of the things that belong to them, I'm in verse 32. Or sorry. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. When they looked at their resources, they said, God has entrusted me with responsibility over these resources. And maybe the reason God gave me this was because you need this. Maybe there's a need within the community that God is going to meet with my resources. Now, we're going to pack this more as we get down further in the paragraph. But clearly you see here, there is a sense of detachment from their stuff. They're charitable because they're not saying this. What's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. And if God wanted you to have more, he would give you more. Well, doesn't that sound like, oh, I want to go to that church. Right? What's mine is mine. What's yours is yours. Yeah, I hope God takes away your mine. He won't mind. That was not a good one. That's not going to make the cut, not going into second service. Okay. But let's, let's continue down because I think this is important too for us to, to see a marker of this New, New Testament church. So they have this idea of sharing. Look at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving the testimony of the resurrection to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And great grace was upon them all. Now we don't want to lose this as we talk about charity. Because there is a sense of faithfulness in the church. So they're not just a charitable organization, a charitable community. They are a Christ-honoring community. They didn't just care about the welfare of the people. They cared about the worship of Jesus. Now, they didn't see these as opposing ideas. They saw them together. Now, it's easy for us to get imbalanced, right? To us, For us to say as, as Christians, that as a community of, uh, of those who believe, that we move to one side and say, if we're all about charity, right? We're all about the welfare of the people around us. We're all about the community. And we lose the worship of Christ, right? Our faithfulness to the truth of Scripture, and so we become a, a, an organization that meets needs. Well, that's not a church. That's a charity. Right? That's a, a community organization. But that's not a church. But on the other side, if we just say, yeah, but we are the pure worshipers of Jesus. We only care about truth. We only care about doctrine. We only care about right thinking. And forget the community. That's not a church either. That's a holy huddle of arrogant people, right? Jesus ran into those people all the time. Did not have very kind words for them, right? So we got to be careful. We got to see that the New Testament church, they were doing both of these really, really well. They were great worshipers and they cared about the welfare of their people. 
they saw them as compatible and not as contradictions to each other, not as opposing ideas. They're a place of worship of Christ and a place where they cared about the welfare of their people. Now check this out. This is the crazy part. So this is going well. Grace is upon them. This is the idea that God is blessing this. Right? God's grace is falling on everybody. I think it's the foundation the reason why they have unity, the reason why they have charity, the reason why they have faithfulness is because that's grounded in the grace of God. And as they express those things more and more, God fuels them with blessing. He fuels them with resources. He fuels them with wisdom. And so his grace is falling upon them. So when it says the grace was upon them, I think it's talking about this is the foundation of these behaviors and it's the fuel of these behaviors. And he sees their faithfulness. He says, great job, guys. Here's more grace and more grace and more grace. Keep going. Now what Luke's going to turn to is he's going to show us a picture of the reality they were able to create because of their charity. And it is crazy. It's crazy. I don't know how they achieved this. Now, and, and I would say this, I would love to be able to hit this goal. I think every church that's ever been a church would love to meet this next goal that this church was able to meet. Now, when we see this, we have to realize with a sense of realism, they probably didn't do this perfectly all the time. No church is perfect, except for our church. But no, no, our church, definitely not. No church is perfect, right? Even those three things, unity and charity and faithfulness, read the book of Corinthians, they mess up all three of those, unity, charity, and faithfulness. In fact, I think just in the first five chapters of 1 Corinthians, they mess up all of those. So no church is perfect, not even the first century. But in this early movement, kind of the infancy of this new movement, they were able to bring about a reality that is remarkable. And why is that? Because they said, what's mine is yours. Because what's mine is his. I'm a steward. Right, look at the next verse. This is, be, this is Luke zooming in now on charity. What was this Christian community like? Unified, much charity, faithfulness. Then he zooms in on charity. Look at verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. What? You ever read the scriptures and go, liar? It's okay if you do that. I do that. Am I wrong? Yes, I am wrong. It's not lying. But that's a reaction to like a shock. Like, wow, there was no, no needy person, not a needy person among them. That is remarkable. And you're like, yeah, well, maybe there's only 12 people. It's a big deal. No, we know at Pentecost that 3,000 people got converted. So this is a church bigger than our church. And there was no, not a needy person among them. How do you achieve that? Like how on earth can that happen that nobody was in need? Well, this language I think is actually picked up from a promise that God made to his people in Deuteronomy chapter 15. So we're talking 16, 1700 years before this ever happened in the New Testament church. This was a reality God wanted to create for his people. Now, sadly, Israel never achieved this. Maybe they hit it a couple times, but really the Old Testament is a story of Israel's failure and not their success. They had moments, but ultimately, right, they found themselves under the judgment of God for their 
unfaithfulness to these things. And in fact, one of the things that they found themselves unfaithful in was caring for the poor. Just read through the prophets of the Old Testament. I'd make the case to you that almost every single prophet rebukes Israel for how they treat their poor and how they treat those in need. But look at what God wanted to create. What was God's ideal? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 15. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. Deuteronomy chapter 15. Now he's setting up. Moses is setting up the people. Here's how you're going to be a people. When you become a nation, you've grown into this giant population under Egyptian slavery. We brought you out of Egypt. You've journeyed through uh, the wilderness. You're on the precipice of the promised land, the, the land that I promised to Abraham long ago. We're at this moment right here. We're getting there. But I need to prepare you for that, okay? And so this is how he's going to prepare them. And look at the language. We're looking for that no needy among them, not a needy person, not a poor person. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what was lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it on his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Wouldn't it be great to have your mortgage forgiven in seven years? I'm like, let's go back to that. You know, I, old covenant's burdensome. You can't eat like shellfish and pork. But if I can get a seven-year mortgage, bacon's not that good. Right? I would, I would go back. <laughs> Shall not exact on his neighbor his brother because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Verse 3. For a foreigner you, sh- you may exact it, but whatever... But whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be, here it is, no poor among you. Now, we are not under the Old Testament law, but we are informed by the Old Testament law. It's an important distinction to put into place. As New Testament followers of Jesus Christ, we fall under like what Paul would refer to as the law of Christ. These are the commands of the New Testament. Now, a lot of them look like Old Testament commands. That's why I say we are informed by the Old Testament law, but we are not under the Old Testament law. That's why you can eat bacon and you can have a shirt that's made of multiple uh, uh, fabrics and you don't have to have four tassels on your cloak. I don't even know what a cloak is, but it's like a thing that Batman has, I think, or Voldemort, uh, one of the two. Uh, both dark and both need tassels according to the old covenant, right? But we're not under that law. So sorry for your seven-year mortgage idea, not going to work. But look what God is saying here. If you obey my instruction, there'll be no poor among you. And then God reminds them, here's what needs to be done in order for this to happen. Look at verse four. But there will be no poor among you for, so here's the reason. There's going to be no poor. Why? For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of our Lord your God, being careful to do all the commandments that I've commanded you today. So here are the ingredients. What does he say to Israel? Israel, if you're going to have no poor among you, no needy among you, you got to obey and I got to bless. That's the only way this reality happens. But if you don't obey, this system won't work. Right? If you don't follow verses 1 through 3 and how you deal with debt, then this is not going to work. If you don't obey all my other commands and keep the land, this is not going to work. And if I don't respond in blessing, this is not going to work. You're not going to have the resources to do this. Here's where we see the idea of stewardship. Right? What's mine is yours, but what's mine 
is his. What is he telling Israel? Israel, the only way you're going to have this charitable community that is unlike anything else in the ancient world, that has no poor or needy among it, every other surrounding nation is going to have poor and needy people. But Israel, you won't. Because you're going to look at all the resources I've given you and you're going to say, what's my responsibility? You're not going to look at all your resources and say, you know what? What's mine is mine. And what's yours is yours. If God wanted you to have more, he'd give you more. No. No. Here, what is God setting up? God is setting up this idea that the way he's going to meet the needs of his people is with his people. That the reason you have what you have is not so just you can have it. It's so you can share it. And that's what the New Testament church realized. They looked at the community of brothers and sisters. And they said, if there is a need among us, one of us has the resources to meet that need. I don't have what I have simply so I can have it. I have what I have so I can share it. And if we all have that idea, sure, not every member is going to live the same and have the same things, but there could be no needy among us if we see ourselves as stewards and not owners, means of God's benevolence. There is a need in this church right now. There's at least one needy person in this church right now. And you may have the resources to meet their need. That God's means of provision is through you. Not in, in spite of you, right? Or, or, or not against you, or not without you in mind. Jump back to Acts chapter 5 and just watch the radical sacrifice that this kind of charity brought about. Look, look at how much they were willing to give to meet the needs of the people. No wonder there was no poor among them or no needy among them. Luke is going to describe kind of a general idea of what charity looked like then. And then he's going to open up for them a, a specific example of one person. Right? So let's go back. We're in verse 34. There was no needy person among them. How could that be? There's this word again, for. Here's the reason of how it happened. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This is crazy charity right here. To give up the selling of property? Now for us in America, about 65% of adults own their home. They're homeowners. That's pretty good. I mean, I'm no economist, but that sounds like a pretty good uh, thing to have. 65% of adults own their home. First century world, first century Palestine, not even close to that. About 10% of people were landowners, which by some economic standards, right, land, ownership of land or property puts you like in the middle class. So that means their middle class was like 10% of the population. And then you had an upper class that was probably like 2% of the population. So you're talking... 88, did I do the math right? 88% of the people were lower class. That, that's significant. So that means these top 10%, right? One out of 10 people in that church own land. 
Now, for us to sell land and property and give the proceeds, I mean, that would be a remarkable amount of charity. But what these guys were doing, if they were selling their property, most likely what was happening for them, they were moving from the middle class to the lower class. Like that was the big division line was the ownership of property. And they were jeopardizing their economic status for the sake of others. That's significant. This guy Barnabas actually does it. Look, we give an example of this in verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. Like, I don't know why he's listing all these things. Isn't this interesting? Like, so the first century church knows exactly who this guy is. The only thing he didn't give was what? His social security number. Right? Joseph. Uh, His nickname is Barnabas. And he's a Levite. So here's his tribe. Oh, and he's from this city. Like, why are you narrowing this down? Like, isn't it interesting because Jesus tells us, right, give without your other hand knowing. Right? Do it in secret. Don't blow a trumpet and say, everybody look at me. Luke, what did you just do to Barnabas? Like, you're like, hey, our number one giver in the first century church, Barnabas. He's like, oh, I lost all my crowns in heaven. There goes all my reward. Thank you. No, the idea there is what Jesus is talking about is don't flaunt it. Right? Don't go out there just to get attention. It doesn't mean that your giving should never be public or should never be known and every gift you give should be anonymous. That's not the idea. The idea is you shouldn't give with the, the idea that you're going to get a return of attention and applause, that you're vain. Here he's putting Barnabas as an example. He's saying, look at this guy. What an example of charity. It's good to have an example. And that's what Luke is setting up for us. This guy sold the property, gave all the proceeds. Now here's another piece that I think is remarkable. Look at the trust here. Once he sells this property, he's this large sum of money. Does he just start going around first century Palestine like, hey, that's me throwing money out. Did you get that? You're like, Paul, I've never been in the club. I don't know. I'm a diehard Christian. I've never seen this, what this means. Okay, if you ever see a rap video and they do this, it's about throwing money in the air. Okay, that's not what Barnabas does. What does he do? He lays it at the apostles' feet. And they decide how to distribute it. That's a significant amount of trust. You know, as a pastor, I read a verse like that. And that verse intimidates me. Because you as a church, as a congregation, you give, and in a sense, you lay that sum, that sacrifice, your generosity, your charity, to this church. You lay it at the leadership, the feet of the leadership of the church, and say, you distribute it. And that's a, that's, a, that's a significant amount of trust. And we do not carry that trust lightly. As, as pastors and staff members, we budget diligently to maximize every single dollar to get the most gospel impact we can. And we have trustees who oversee that entire process to make sure it's done with integrity. We don't take your generosity lightly. That's a significant amount of trust. And in a culture that lacks trust of institutions, 
right, that, that lacks trust of, of giving money over to an organization. We see this in the growing generations, the millennials, the Gen Zers. They are more skeptical of charitable organizations. It could be nonprofit, profit, right? Giving over to an organization is not something that they find to be wise, because it's hard to trust, right? There's a, there's a breaking of trust. And we could talk about what's happened in the culture to create that. There's several things, I think. But clearly the idea is like, I don't trust you with this. I, I'll do it myself. But we see in the first century church, what? A submission to the leadership of the church. That's significant. And I want you to just know, as a pastor, I do not take that lightly. We do not take that lightly. We are honored by that trust. And we will not abuse that. That's our commitment to you. That we will use every dollar for significant gospel ministry. And we will maximize every sacrifice that you give to push forward the gospel of Jesus Christ and to meet those needs, financial needs of the community around us. All right, let's, jump, let's just jump back to, I just want to make a point on that. Let's jump back to Acts chapter 5. Because this is something I think we don't want to get lost here. So jump all the way back up to verse 32. It said, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Okay. Let me give you some advice. Okay. I was just listening to this wonderful uh, Christian leader, and he was uh, recounting, he was at this conference, I think, and uh, somebody uh, raised their hand, and they said, you know, I have, I have a question. If you give me one bit of advice as a follower of Jesus Christ, as I'm reading the scriptures, like, what would be that one bit of advice? And the guy was like, oh, okay. And he said, this is what he said. <laughs> Number one advice, don't read a Bible verse. That's weird to hear. You're like, I don't like this guy. Uh, <laughs> don't read a Bible verse. Here's what's his point. Don't read a Bible verse. Because that's when you get in trouble. Right? Let's say Kimo and I decide to get in the boxing ring. Right? And I'm, don't laugh. That was my best move. <laughs> like, that's all I got. I practiced that. If I jump in that ring, it chemo outweighs me. Ah, 15 pounds. Okay, 100. Jeez Louise. Okay. Anyway, I get in there, and then I'm like, I need my Bible verse. I need, okay, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How do you think that match is going to end? First of all, I don't think I'm going to get a swing out. And then I think no matter where he hits me, I'm done. He could hit me in the shoulder. I'd be like, I'm out. <laughs> Somehow he hits that and my liver explodes and it's just over. Right? That's what's going to happen. See what happens when we take one Bible verse? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Don't go to the gym, put 600 pounds on the plates and like, I'm going to squat this. I got this. Don't do that. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about contentment in ministry and enduring suffering. That's what he's talking about. You can do that. But when we read one verse a verse and we kind of cut it out and we kind of like tweet it or put it on x whatever it's called now that's dangerous don't read a bible verse read the context what came before and what came after and what does that mean within this chapter what does that mean within this book and what does that mean with in the entire bible so here's what we don't want to do we don't want to read this passage and say, oh, look, they had everything in common. That means nobody owned anything. Like the first century church, they're like, all right, bring the deeds to your house, pink slips to your car, lay it at the apostles' feet. 
I know you're like, if that, that's what membership here is at Sunrise Church. Bring your deeds and bring your pink slips. Okay, I've seen some, you know, I saw a couple Corvettes. Like, you can bring those. Uh, well, keep your Teslas. I don't want them. Okay, I don't want them. I'll just recycle them. <laughs> Sorry. Right? But that's not the idea. That's not the idea. We got to realize that, that, that this idea of charity, this idea of generosity, it was voluntary. Right? Let me show you this. All we have to do is read the next chapter in Acts chapter 5 and see this played out. Look at this, what Peter says to somebody who gave a very charitable gift, but they withheld some of their gift and they lied about it. And look at where Peter says, he pinpoints where the sin is. This is verse 3 of Acts, or of Acts chapter 5. But Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Is Peter saying here, the problem is you held it back. You didn't give everything. No, it's not what he's saying. And we'll see that later. What he's saying is you lied about it. You said you gave 100%, but you only gave 80%. The problem is not that you gave 80%. The problem is that you lied about it. Like, look what he says right after this. And here's what we'll see. There is voluntary generosity here. And you can own things. It's okay to have belongings. I know you're thinking, right? Maybe you're on your phone right now just with your account. Like, don't transfer all my funds yet. Don't liquidate everything. Yes, calm down. It's okay for you to have stuff, right? Look at what he says. Holy Spirit, and keep back from yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. What is he telling him here? You had the right, man. We see this later in Acts chapter 12. Mary has a house that she uses for ministry. So we don't have people just in the first century world just giving over everything. And now the church owns everything. I'm in this community and I sign over all of my stuff. No, that's not the idea. It's okay for you to say this is mine. As long as you add, it's mine because first it's his. And it's mine, but in some way it's also yours. There's the balance. You don't just give everything everything away and have no belongings that's not the idea it's that you're a steward of those belongings it's that when you look at those belongings you don't see here's what I have a right to have you look at those belongings you say what's my responsibility with these things I'm responsible to care for myself I'm responsible to care for my family and I'm responsible to care for the community of believers that I am a part of so it's okay to say mine, as long as you say, what's mine is yours, because what's mine is first his. Now, we as a church have been stellar at taking care of our people. We really have. We have a, a mercy fund. You, you, you may not know this, but I think if you've been here for a while, you, you know about the mercy fund. Interesting fact about the Mercy Fund is the Mercy Fund is as old as I am. So the Mercy Fund started here at Sunrise Church. We weren't in this building, but in 1984. So the Mercy Fund is 39 years old. That's pretty cool. The Mercy Fund, we have helped hundreds of people, and we help hundreds of people every year. 
It could be rental assistance. It could be utility bills. It could be people in significant tragedy, say their house burned down. The Mercy Fund, we were able to help out the several uh, or give money to a church in Maui to help out what happened there in those devastating fires. You gave to that. The Mercy Fund gave to that. The Mercy Fund helps to meet needs of people. And we hope, we would love to get to that stage where in our church there was no one in need. That would be super great. What a wonderful picture, right? If we could say of Sunrise Church, this church, there's no needy among us. Now, we're in an American church, so our affluence is much higher than the world church. All right, so maybe we could say that to some standard. There is really no needy maybe among us. But there are definitely needs among us. And church family, here's what I just encourage you to. As you faithfully give and faithfully support the ministry, I would encourage you to prayerfully consider even giving to the Mercy Fund. To a fund that's going to help meet the needs. It's a perfect opportunity for you to say, here's how I'm going to lay my resources at the feet of the leaders of this church. And they will distribute it accordingly to meet the needs of those around us. There are needs in this church that God wants to meet with your resources. When you look at your resources, what do you say? This is my right. This is mine. My guess is you're not going to find that in your heart, that idea of what's mine is mine, what's yours is yours, and if God wanted you to have more, he'd give you more. That's not the history of our church, right? But we don't want to get there. We don't want to get to that spot. We want to look at our stuff and say, what's my responsibility with these things? Now, maybe you're, you're just starting to come to sunrise, and maybe you're just starting to piece things together about who Jesus is and his teaching and everything. Here's what I hope you experience. I hope you experience not just financial charity, but the relational charity of this community. Like I hope when you come here, you feel like you have refrigerator rights. Like you're not just a guest, you're a friend. You know, I've been, I've been so encouraged to hear about several people who are curious about Jesus, not yet committed to him, but curious about Jesus, who are walking through our 10-week discipleship journey. You hear us talk about that all the time, that if you want to know what it's like to follow Jesus, if you want to know what it's like to get into just the rhythms of what Christianity is, and we believe there's, there's seven rhythms you need to learn as a Christian, patterns of living that you need to learn. You need to learn what, what worship is about. You need to learn what Bible reading is about, uh, how to pray, how to repent of your sins, surrender. You need to learn how to be generous. You need to learn how to serve. You need to learn how to share your story. You need to walk through those things. If, if you want to know what it's like to experience those things, Man, this 10-week discipleship journey that we do is going to teach you all of those things. We've had over 200 people walk through this journey just this year. And we're going to continue to do it. And we love it. And we should applaud that. That's great. You go ahead. And, and we see just maturity growing that. And I've, what I've heard is there are people in those groups, and I'm so excited about this, that are still not yet committed to Jesus. They're like, I just want to give Christianity a try. That's a perfect way. To invest 10 weeks of your life to see, is this Christian thing true? Because it's not just about knowing the facts. It's about experiencing the community. Because I think there is a true persuasive sense of when you get around God's people, you see this stuff is real. This, this, this matches what my heart has been longing for because I'm experiencing it. It's not just a logical syllogism. 
right? Jesus Christ is the son of God because of this, 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 and this. Therefore, no, no, no. Is that true? Yes. But you feel a bond of soul and heart like described here. You experience that. I pray that your curiosity finds hospitality here. That you feel like you belong here even before you believe what we believe. Now, we want you to believe what we believe because we believe it's true. But you belong here. You belong here before you ever believe. This is community for you. And we care about you. And we don't want you to have need. And the more you step into community with us, I think the more you're going to feel that warm hospitality of your family, you are with us, you belong here. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you and we, we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, I thank you for your benevolence to us. I thank you for your compassion to us. I thank you for your charity. Christ, you became poor that we might become rich. That's how the scriptures describe your descent in to humanity, your incarnation, your taking on flesh, that you took on the form of a servant, even to the point of death, that you died on a cross for the guilt of, of our sin, that you bore the penalty of our wrongdoings, and then you give to us the gift of eternal life. And, and when we see the cross and the charity of the cross, how can we hold on to our things so tightly? We can't. We, we have to look at those things and say, I'm responsible to use these things to meet the needs of those around me. Father, continue to grow us as a charitable church. And I thank you for what we've been. Man, for, for 39 years, we've, have a, we've had a fund that just helps people in need. Isn't that an awesome testimony of a great church? I, I pray that as we continue as a church, that we would have that descriptor. Like when Luke pauses and talks about charity and unity and faithfulness, that you would find Sunrise Church to be that kind of church. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.